И данная, эти русские революции должна будет Если немцы хотят не истребить войну, они ее получат. La lucha armada es el único camino para la liberación. Patria o muerte. Ayer estuvo el diablo aquí, huele a azufre todavía. And the cheap labor taken out of these countries. These countries are not underdeveloped, they're overexploited. You're tuned into Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. We're live on TikTok, it's the first time. And I'm your host and comrade, Shibby. This episode is the start of what will be a series on feminism and Marxism. People maybe were familiar with our various series in the past where we've seek to investigate particular oppressed class or groups of people in society, as well as their exclusion or even alienation from Marxist social circles. And this is so not to just criticize people, but so that we may all better understand and work with each other towards the end of capitalism. Um, I think that we spoke a little bit about before this episode to like try and do some preparation. And like you mentioned that like you've actually suffered some sort of alienation over being a feminist from even Marxist. So for me, it was important to just kind of focus on an episode for that and talk about that in the series. And we can ask these similar questions that I'll ask today with other uh, sister comrades and see if they have similar experiences. I think that that's a better scientific approach. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm hoping to do a series with that. Um, so that this episode is no different in that sense. Um, and because I'm not an expert in feminism or what it's like to work with other radicals as a woman, I'm extremely grateful and honored to welcome on our friend and guest, host of the Bipolar Feminist Podcast, Nikita. Welcome to the podcast, Nikita. Thank you for being here Thank again you. and doing this. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think our chats previously have uh, kind of revolved around um, economics, the economics of communism and uh, and how we can actually achieve it. But I'm, I'm quite uh, keen to have these conversations on feminism and how we can um, integrate Marxist feminism and communism as a whole, because it's something that is kind of, it always takes the back seat. That sounds incredible. Yeah, I think that maybe we should start that and we'll investigate why that could be the case um, mm -hmm. in this. So before we get started in that subject matter, we always love to get to know our guests on this podcast. We think that, you know, something getting to know your background, political tendency, if you subscribe to one um, and, and, you know, anything maybe to do with your organizing or your podcast could go a long way to really bring out the subject matter later on. So could you just please go into your background there for us, please? Before I get into that, uh, can you mod Canary Contrary, who is liking I, I the think it's now? done. 
Okay. I think I've done now. I couldn't co- type in the comments. I couldn't see me <laughs> the button. But it is All fine. right. Thanks. Um, so my background, I'm a South African of Indian descent. Um, my family, well, the Indian uh, people from this uh, from this country have been here since around 1860. And indentured labor um, of Indian people started in 1860 into South Africa and ended around the mid-1900s. Um, so that's where my family comes from. Uh, I don't know any of my family in India. My uncle has been tracing our family back. Um, and my family have been full of activists. My uncle um, was very much wanted by the government, so were my parents. Um, my parents less so. My uncle was the was the big troublemaker. Um, and uh, yeah, I grew up in uh, an anti-apartheid household, constantly being taught about Marxism, taught about communism, uh, being taught about feminism from a, a Marxist lens. Um, I'm a journalist. Um, not full-time right now. I'm, I produce the Bipolar Feminist Podcast, and I write freelance for publications every now and then. But I used to be a full-time journalist, and um, a lot of my work was uh, going overseas on conflict stories. And yeah, aside from that, I'm a mother of cats. I have one of them next to me. His name is Chairman Meow. <laughs> no way. I love that. Uh, that's brilliant. That's quite a background. So you said, like, if you... If you don't mind, your uncle was a troublemaker. Why was that? Well, my parents and my uncle and his wife were all the troublemakers. And um, they were involved in hectic anti-apartheid activities. Um, They were involved in what was known as Operation Vula, which was supposed to be the violent takeover of South Africa should the apartheid government have not agreed to unban the African National Congress and the Pan-Africanist Congress. God damn it. I wanted to bring that out to contextualize it for a lot of people. When we're talking about troublemakers, this is often how people, victims of colonialism, you could say, are seen. And it's simply just trying to resist, trying to survive. They're condemned for it. When I was doing a bit of a background check, you're radical in so many different ways. I think that we could have an interview and talk about, you know, whether it's anti-apartheid, decolonialism, racism, and this instant feminism. And I just want you to recognize that I do appreciate you in all those ways. And it's not just about feminism, but this episode to bridge that gap between hopefully females, myself and well, the audience. Women and fans. Yeah, women. Yeah, I knew I was going to slip up on the terminology at some point. <laughs> again, we'll learn from well, this. <laughs> I will always correct um, because the language we use is important. And when we say that language matters, we don't just say uh, we're not just talking about good grammar, because honestly, I used to be one of those people who used to correct people's grammar. I've learned since then that uh, English is not a measure of intelligence. Um, Good grammar is not a measure of intelligence. Why I say language matters is how we use language for and against people, because there's no such thing as the uh, as the voiceless. There's only the deliberately silenced. And when I say that they are deliberately silenced, they're silenced for a reason. They're silenced for the reason that they have a story to tell and their stories will contradict those in power. And their stories will destabilize those in power. So we have to use our language to destabilize their narratives. And calling women females is one of those things because we're not just reproductive bodies. (laughs) 
Yeah, we have so much uh, okay. that. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I think I stumbled because I was trying to be like so s- specific in that. So I naturally just like <laughs> I messed got you. up, like and stumbled. <laughs> um, I, I got I'd you. like to think anyway. But no, it's well said, and I think that that would actually ties on very well with our next question, which is like when we're going to be talking about feminism. Is your feminism? like a liberal sort of feminism like is it different in any way what differences are that the ordinary person might not know liberal feminism to me is white woman feminism the kind of feminism that rose out of the suffragette movements of um, britain and the americas where white women were fighting for the right to vote fighting for the right to exist as supposed equal citizens in an unequal system on the condition that Black people, black and brown people, were still seen as second-class citizens, or third, or even the bottom of the barrel. So the entire um, idea of liberal feminism is to comfortably exist within the existing systems and not to challenge the systems themselves so that all women and femmes can be free. Um, So absolutely not a liberal feminist. Um, I would call myself an intersectional Marxist feminist. Uh, Intersectional because um, Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term in the 1980s, speaking specifically about the injustices that specifically black women face, not just in the workplace, even though the case that she wrote about was about black women in the workplace. Um, The theory has been expanded to include how black women have been treated in society as a whole and how they experience different intersections of oppression coming from different intersections of privilege. And yes, um, intersectionality is to do with black women, but I think we can apply that theory to all women and femmes of color across the spectrum, that women and femmes of color experience oppression differently to white women and femmes. And uh, Marxist, because it's all to do with the economics. Um, We exist in a capitalist system. We exist in a system where our financial um, and economic uh, uh, realities shape the way in which we interact and move within the world. And until every single woman and femme has the opportunity not to be the CEO, I don't give a fuck about CEOs, um, until all women and femmes have equal access to basic necessities and the ability to live their lives the way they want to outside or within economics, uh, our current economic system, it is not free. Indeed, that's very, very thought provoking and illuminating. If I could just try and describe it to see if I understand correctly. The intersectionalism and intersectional feminism comes from the different sects, like, that is to say, not just white people or white women. Um, and that's because white women, their forms of oppression are only limited so far. And it would only be if they were black or any other kind of non-white group where they'd actually experience these other 
falls of oppression so liberal, feminism is sort of within that narrative because it's shared within those people. And, and that's why we're talking about CEOs, because that's like their kind of uh, women power. But when you just yeah. described this, it seems to be like um, extremely well thought out. Is that, a, is that a very long tradition? Is it sort of a new tradition? What, what, what are like sort of its historical roots and are there still people contributing to that today, you know, besides yourself? Well, intersectionality as a term itself was coined by Crenshaw in the 80s, but the concept of intersectionality has always been around. It has been around since before slavery ended. Um, if you look at uh, Sojourner Truth's speech at um, now the name of the convention, I'm completely drawing a blank. Uh, Sojourner Truth um, spoke at a convention to a room of well, multiracial women, femmes, men, slave owners, people who were slave owners, um, and spoke about intersectionality in a very grassroots manner, talking about, is she not a woman? Does she not have the same wants and needs and desires as any other woman? And just because she's black, does it mean that she's not a woman? And she, so she was talking about intersectionality all the way back when. But only over the past few decades has it been given a name and has it been given credence as a, an academic concept. And now, through the dissemination of social media, it's been given credence in the public, uh, public sphere of, of speaking and in our everyday narratives. And so when we talk about intersectionality as a concept, you can read Bell Hooks. She also wrote a book called Ain't I a Woman Inspired by Sojourner Truth. And she talks about black womanhood in, in the Americas and how black women have been treated as less than for so, so long uh, that the narrative was that women only started working around the First World War. No, women entered the workplace centuries before because black and brown women have always worked. And those... And those stories have been erased and whitewashed from history. No, women didn't get the vote um, in, in the 1920s. Women got the vote in 1964. And in South Africa, women got the vote in 1994. Yeah, really powerful stuff. People should go away and research what you said, the names you mentioned of those people, and I think I will too. But it also seems to be like a similar strain. I'm trying to think of the root causes. Like we're talking about liberation of women, not just white women, because if, if you are truly a feminist, then it should be all women. So why isn't everybody getting on board with that? Like what is standing in the way of that? It must be saying prejudices. And I suppose in the spirit of this episode, feminism and Marxism, could I say intersectionalism, feminism isn't, welcomed in Marxist circles? Have you ever experienced that in socialist circles? And is that similar to why it hasn't been picked on more broadly in radical circles that are against the establishment overall in the past? I think that question is threefold. And I'm yeah, going to answer the loaded. <laughs> It's very loaded. Um, intersectional feminism and of course, Marxist feminism has not been picked up by white women because white women, and this I say all the time, I think 
the comrades who know me very well on here have heard it heard me say it time and time again white women will always choose the power of white supremacy over solidarity with women of color and because white supremacy is so comfortable uh, white women sit so comfortably within the capitalism and the, um, the 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 material comfort and the protection of white supremacy that aligning themselves with bipoc women and femmes puts them in danger of losing that power of white supremacy and that superiority under capitalism so that's the first part the second part is being kind of shunned in marxist and socialist and communist circles we see struggle and we saw this very very clearly in south africa uh, under apartheid that people were saying that yes women have it bad in south africa but we have to solve the race struggle first and yes the racism was at uh, it, it came to such a head that people were unaliving um black people in the streets and not facing any repercussions for it and this was a commonplace thing and this was regardless of gender regardless of uh, sexuality obviously you have those intersections where um a gay black man would be far uh, a far bigger target than a straight black man um so those intersections came into play when knowledge came into play but on the surface level racism was the thing to be tackled but what was meant to happen in the anti apartheid struggle was racism patriarchy and capitalism was supposed to be tackled all at once but the race struggle was so huge that they decided the race struggle comes first so we are going to leave the anti capitalist um struggle to one side we're going to leave the women's struggle to one side and we see now that south africa is a post capitalist country where people are saying oh the struggle is over because there are a few rich people of color uh or what we call black diamonds in south africa you have a very elite few very very rich black people and they said okay now racism is over but we also have the highest femicide uh sorry we have the highest femicide rate in the world and that is telling that those two struggles were left so far behind in the pursuit of racial equality that no equality actually happened it was just that the government changed hands and so apartheid never truly ended it was just privatized and so as we are seeing in marxist and leftist circles the women's struggle is always taking the back seat and so when you say marxist feminism they still think of you as a brawling man hating um vibrating wand waving witch and so i mean that that image to me is perfect but how we how seriously brown feminists are taken in leftist circles i can only trust white comrades as far as i can throw them after the way i have been treated by white comrades yeah whoa I, like there was a, in my mind 
Because I, I, I knew this question, I didn't know the answer, but in my mind I had things that I wanted to follow up on and touch on just to try and underline that answer a bit more. But you covered everything, you covered everything. You <laughs> said woman side, did you? I've never heard of that phrase before, but that's exactly what happened. People have to remember that there was actual witch hunts, you know, that got mentioned again, I think. These were actual women's sides. And there was also a, a quote as well. I didn't know whether I could say it on live or not, but there was also a quote where, uh, because obviously women have also been seen as dishwashers for like most of, you know, the atomic age and whatnot. So James Connolly had a quote and he said, that workers are the slave to the capitalist and the woman is the slave to the slave. Women have always had the struggle taking place, but I suppose one of the questions there, and you did kind of answer it, but what about those Marxist or those socialists now? Because the reason to put off with feminism or getting involved or supporting it is because they think we should just get involved in the class struggle, we should just focus on socialism, and then women will be free anyway. I say no. Unfortunately, no. Because you have to, have to, have to tackle what um, my mother and I had this wonderful conversation a couple of years ago where we came up with the concept of the trifecta of oppression. Um, capitalism, patriarchy, racism that work hand in hand together so intricately and they're so tightly woven into each other that you cannot separate them. If you are going to try to tackle taking down capitalism, you cannot do it without taking down the other forms of exploitation through racism and patriarchy. Because mm. at the root of capitalism is the exploitation of the few for the benefit uh, of the many for the benefit of the few. So when you're looking at the exploitation of the many, who are the most exploited in society? It is people of color and it is women and femmes or any gender diverse person. So patriarchy keeping all people in this bond of patriarchy keeps us in our, in our uh, economic bubbles as well because it creates these gender roles where man hunt, make fire and woman clean, cook dinner. Yeah, wow. Okay, great. Thank you very much. So uh, I suppose in a way if people are going to exclude feminist or not take seriously like their struggle and then just focus on socialism. I suppose that there's many women out there who are thinking, well, why should I take socialism seriously? Why should I take Marxism seriously if they're not taking me and my struggles seriously? Um, you shouldn't every but I mean, a lot of women don't take the class struggle seriously because it is so... Um, it has always been led by white men. We're constantly being told to read Marx, who was an absolute misogynist. We're told to read Kropotkin. We're told to read Lenin. We're told to read Stalin. Like all of these dead white men, I don't give a shit about them. I'm going to read their stuff and I'm going to apply it very broadly to the struggles that we are facing now because they were writing at a time where the reality was very different and they were writing to a European audience and, and a Russian audience. So I'm not going to take them as seriously as the white men who venerate them take them. 
So yeah, I'm going to read Marx. And if I have kids, heaven forbid, I'm going to read them Marx. I'm also going to give them Kropotkin to read. And I'm also going to give them uh, under the dictatorship of the proletariat. But I'm also going to give them Angela Davis. I'm also going to give them Bell Hooks. I'm also going to give them um, James Baldwin. I'm also going to give them Walter Rodney. I'm going to give them Sankara. And I'm going to give them people who speak to their reality as well. And we need to be writing the theory of now. There are many people writing now. Angela Davis just released a book on feminism and abolition, talking about the abolition of the prison, of the prison industrial complex. And we're reading Walter Rodney in the reading group that I hold on Discord. And the conversations that we have around these things is how whitewashed history has become that we believe those narratives that Africa is poor because of its own uh, lack of administrative skills. No, it's not. So all of these things have to be taken into consideration when trying to convince people that actually we need to fight for communism and or socialism. We need to band together as the working class. And I do not blame black and brown women for not taking um, communist and socialist movements seriously because it is still led by white men so it needs to be more inclusive and how it can be inclusive is by actually focusing on issues that are intersectional <coughs> and i'm not speaking about intersectionality as just a keyword or a catchphrase that's thrown out there to actually be intersectional because what we see what we see as a reality in these discourse spaces is that you have one or two brown women and femmes who are like the token. They're called up into lives to argue points while the host is a white man who's getting all the coins and the brown women and femmes are doing all the intellectual labor. And so it's, it's that tokenism that needs to be completely gotten rid of. And the idea that the most marginalized people need to lead the revolution. And yes, there still has to, there has to be a revolution. But that's another topic for another day. Wow. Absolutely. Like, outstanding. I think we got everything I could have wanted out of this. And like, I can't lie. Obviously, they will vouch for me, but Pink Sharks, the moderator, I did actually earlier on say that I wanted to, to mention Marx and Lenin had never written anything about feminism, like, ever. Yes. So, like, um, and it's always left to the radical women to write. So the follow-up question to that was going to be, can men be feminists or non-binary or non-binary people be feminists? Can women and masks be feminist? Um, can men and masks be feminist? I would say yes. And this is a bone of contention with a lot of people. So many people have differing opinions on it and those opinions are valid. I would say yes. Because if you are practicing living your life and in engaging in such a way that 
women and femmes are not just put first, but their voices are elevated by your platforms and that you live your everyday life with the understanding that this is the oppression that has been taking place for centuries and we need to rectify that. That is feminism in action. And you don't have to be reading the theory. Yes, you must read the theory. I'm all about theory. In fact, I did a, a not thirst trap a couple of months ago, you know, with that um, that Sam Smith sound from the, the song Unholy. And people thought, oh, at the changeover, it's going to be such a thirst trap. And I was like, do you really think I'm going to be doing a thirst trap on here? No, go read theory. <laughs> and people said, yeah, that's a nerd trap. Um, but absolutely, read the theory, engage with your community and undo every single toxic thing that you come across that you do in your everyday life. Let it be pointed out to you. Don't get all up in your feelings because if, especially if a white man gets up in his feelings with me, I'm gonna ask him, hey, are you on your period? And yeah, it, it never ends well. <laughs> Love it, love it. How general do you think this understanding is of women's oppression within women generally? Do you think it's, it's more common than men understand it's the role between oppression and the state or do women understand that more? Is it something men don't understand or are left out of because we'll never see it? Just out of curiosity, please. Okay, in terms of privileged society, I would say that women do have the language, but they don't have the space for it. And there are so many internal uh, women with internalized misogyny that they're holding on to the status quo because it is comfortable and they are safe within it because there has always been the threat of male violence. And male violence always comes at the expense of women. And not just in form of domestic violence or financial violence or psychological violence, I'm talking actual unaliving. A woman has to leave her abusive husband seven times, an average of seven times before it sticks. And imagine if a woman has to suddenly become class conscientized and her partner is still in that mindset because it works for him. Women stay in those situations and they stay in those mindsets because they have no other choice. And then there's access to education, access to resources and absolutely the state has a huge hand to play in the way in which that knowledge is disseminated or not disseminated. I mean, books are being burnt, books are being banned. And this has always been the case. No, we are not returning to 1939 to 1945. Oh, well, actually 1933. We're not returning to that. It's worse because we damn well should know better and it's still happening. It's a cognitive dissonance that we are fighting. But when it comes to the poorest of the poor in the working class, 
women know these realities. They know how the state behaves. They know how society behaves. They know how the privileged behave because they live that reality and they are the the main, the, I would say society's pincushions because they experience that oppression on a day-to-day -day basis. They experience it when they walk 10 miles to go and get a bucket of water for their kids. They experience it when they don't have work and they have to sell whatever they have in their homes. They experience it when their partners become migrant laborers and they're raising a seven-person family on their own. Or they go out to do work and their eldest daughter is put in charge of raising the family. And I would say that when people say, you know, just work hard, I always tell them, if working hard got you ahead, the richest woman, the, the richest people in the world would be black women from Africa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do just want to say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that women have to go through all that. I'm sorry that it is so standing. I'm sorry that people just sort of just don't pay that much attention or don't know enough. I just hope that people can come together. I just hope that we can understand, you know, these struggles, where they come from, these traditions ultimately benefit our own oppressors anyway. Um, and I think that we can start now. The things that we can start now is simply you know, stop using sexist, demeaning slurs in our life. Stop calling them females, for example, because <laughs> it's so re reductive. And I think language is a big part of that. And if we can all just go away, just like even though it, it might come out or it might just be a snappy little insult or something, we've got to just stop saying these things. The one thing. We can do is just stop it in a language try and change a little culture have you got any other thoughts of what people can do now to to be a, a feminist a better feminist proactive i mean okay i would always say commiserations fair enough i don't want people's guilt i don't want white guilt sitting on my shoulders I don't want men's guilt sitting on my shoulders. I want changed action. Mm -hmm. Yes, changing our language is an important part of how we um, review and re-energize the working class. Yes, we need to reconfigure how we view the world around us. And that's such an important part. But I want change behavior. I want action. I want to feel safe around my comrades. Um, I want to have spaces where we can have these conversations without white men yelling and saying, but my feelings. Um, and this is what we come across every single day in leftist spaces. That we're always placating white men's feelings. So I want change behavior. How people, especially leftists, can become more feminist, read feminist theory, read Laura Mulvey. I don't really like Gloria Steinem that much, but read Gloria Steinem. I don't like Simone de Beauvoir that much, but read Simone de Beauvoir. 
I don't like Chimamanda that much, but read Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie and then find out why they're problematic. Read, read, read and engage with these people. Engage with stuff like bell hooks, engage with Angela Davis, engage with Toni Morrison, engage with the lived reality of black and brown women and films. And obviously, after you've re read all of it, after you've processed all of it, speak to the woman you know. Speak to the black and brown woman you know. Because if you're not speaking to the people in your life, you are not taking their reality seriously. You are not taking their lived experience seriously. And changing behavior through those, that reading and that understanding, understanding that when I go to the hospital as an overweight femme of color, I'm going to get told, the first thing I'm going to get told is just lose weight. So if my partner, if, if my partner is a man and they're coming with me to the ER, if I'm in so much pain that I can't speak and the doctor says she just needs to lose weight, I want you firstly to correct, uh, correct them on my pronouns and secondly say, no, they don't need to lose weight. You need to find out what's wrong. And advocate for the people who are in your circles and they advocate for larger society. And it's huge work. It's so much work and people are not prepared to do that work because it's so much easier to get caught up in your bubble of your little family or like, hey, I have a 12-year-old who is autistic. Yes, you know, it is a valid thing to go through that you are just going to be focusing on your little family. But don't just focus on the family because what is happening outside that family dynamic especially when you're not there, is that autistic 12-year-old is going to come up against somebody who is groping her in a bathroom in a club when she's 17. And then what do you do then? You're not equipped to deal with that. You're equipped to deal with her in the house. It is all so tightly woven together. And we have a tough time ahead of us, that our revolution does not start with knives and pitchforks. It's starting with books. And this is exactly what Che Guevara did. Why did um, the Cuban revolution take so long to get going, to get underway? Guevara was in, was in Cuba for many, many years before the revolution started. He was speaking to, to revolutionaries. He, he was conversing with people like Alex Laguma, a writer from South Africa who's now buried in, uh, in Cuba, talking about how can we educate the masses. Going into village to village to village to village, giving them writing tools, teaching them how to read and write, conscientizing them to the fact that this is a reality that you are living because of the ruling class, because of capitalism. Yes, Pink Sharks. Fidel's wife played a huge role because she was conscientizing people. She was educating people. And if you are not educating yourself and if you're not reading and if you're not actually doing the work, doing the intersectional work, doing the, the, the groundwork of feeding your brain 
then how are you going to feed the masses? That was so powerful, so engrossing. Literally almost brought me to fucking tears. I had a couple of nervous laughs because it was that close to going to getting some tears. And I also and I also knew that the last thing you wanted to see was some white man's tears. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, I can't be doing this. But, you know, on that note, you know, I do really want to keep platforming our feminist comrades, all their messages. So if there's anybody who's listening now who would like to come on and discuss in their experiences, their ideas and what to do, please do give us a message or pass it on to somebody else. I don't think we have any more questions. I think maybe if you'd welcome it, we could just give our viewers a chance to ask some questions before. Yes, any questions, please, please uh, uh, ask away. And like, I think solidarity is where we can start on the absolute basic level. Um, Shibi, it's like the way in which we are disregarded in leftist spaces as as feminists um you will see hundreds of people in a live where a white man has a has an inflammatory background talking about should cops exist or saying a cab or saying things like um communism or the capitalism you'll have hundreds of people but then when a brown woman is educating you'll have seven or eight people and we see it so clearly when we're doing readings. There's a creator on here um, named Alex. The username is Elaine Brown Fan Club. Please, please, please do yourself a favor and go and follow them. They're part of the Black Panther Party in the US. They are reading Black Panther literature almost every day on this app at 8 p.m. Eastern. But mm. there's so few people listening. They, they've been reading wow. things like Huey P. Newton's um, autobiography, currently reading Angela Davis's autobiography, reading stuff by, um, by Elaine Brown, Asata Shakur, all of these people who have fought for the liberation of black people in the US and engaging with these conversations. Yes, Elaine Brown fan club. And uh, they get seven or eight viewers at a time. And then people are saying, and then white leftists say, oh, I'm so sorry, we didn't know. No, we're giving you the education and we're giving it to you for free. God damn. So, so look, at a former Black Panther with all this potential, I might, like, when I hear that, this is the kind of thing where if they were willing to meet me, I'd actually be willing to sell my labor to a capitalist and then just to eventually go and meet this person and shake their hand. I'm sure that, you know, I need to check them out. I will make sure to check them out and listen to them. I love to platform them, of course, to probably just yes. think mayo and then just ignore me. <laughs> Maybe somebody could put in a good word, but again, it would just be totally hearing them out, just interviewing them, trying to learn as much as I can. I haven't been subject to it of my life. The only thing I can do is ask questions, try and learn from them, form good ideas and how to conduct myself better as a person and also translate that to my human community so that we can hopefully go forward into a better one together. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we do have a question. Yes. Uh, uh, so... Uh, thank you, Coco, for saying great job. I appreciate that. You were a great job at listening. You were the 10 out of 10. Um, 
Pink Sharks. This is an interview and it's for the podcast, everybody. So for everybody who doesn't know, this is going to go up on the Patreon at patreon.com slash lumpenpodcast. It's also going to go up on our main feed, um, Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. If you would like to re-listen or share this, do you want to just, just give your Patreon a shout out just because I did yes. there, Nikita, and then we'll go into these questions. Um, so my uh, Patreon is called The Bipolar Feminist. And it's a podcast on intersectional Marxist feminism and mental health. As the name suggests, I'm bipolar and I'm a feminist. So, yeah. Um, so it's called The Bipolar Feminist. And it's also on Spotify and Apple Music and all of those kinds of places. But um, because it's how I have to exist under capitalism, I would prefer people to go to Patreon and subscribe. There are tiers going from $5 up to $35 a month. And uh, there's somewhere in there, there's merch included. Um, so, yeah, I'm the Bipolar Feminist. And uh, I also have a website where I write all my other ramblings for some of the other places that I work for. Recently did um, a really interesting obituary for Sinead O'Connor that was responded to quite well, funnily enough. Um, but, yeah, because there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, I have to kind of live the only actually the only ethical consumption under capitalism is eating ass. So go forth and do that consensually. Yeah. I was going to say rich for, yeah. No, no, no. Ethical consumption under capitalism, the own thing is eating ass. They will be included in the show notes <laughs> as well. Really... So um, we'll have everything yeah. noted there in our show notes as well, so people can go and follow and support your work. Um, Piper asked, are there any theorists, thinkers, resources that you haven't mentioned yet that we should check out? Any theorists? Okay. On my link tree, and I know that this is like creator bingo here. On my link tree, I have a list. Um, there's a huge, huge reading list. Um, and it is a Google Doc of black and brown authors, Marxist and communist authors. It is just so chock-a-block. And then I have a link to my Discord in there as well, where the library has over hundreds of thousands worth of dollars worth of textbooks. Yeah. Big money. So there you go, you just saved <laughs> just as PDFs. thousands of dollars there. Yeah, so the least you can do is go and support Nikita on Patreon as a thank you for that. <laughs> you just saved money. Realistically, it's great that all yeah. those resources are for there. Flower said, this reminds me of when I did live with other creators. I was the white mask voice and got hella. Yeah, sometimes I listen back to my voice when I'm editing and just thinking, should I just hide that up a few octaves? Because that's that's just too deep. Yeah. Um, of friend pink sharks as on an internet on an international sense excluding the uh, many much white supremacist identity how oh. is an international language represented on an inter and an anti-imperialist pro-feminist framework that's a big question that is a good answer. question how can an international language represent an anti-imperialist okay and this is an interesting one because this is something that we've been talking about through reading Walter Rodney in that 
you have to understand how imperialism works on a global scale. We cannot just say, like imperialism affects one country in this way and another country in that way. We have to look at how it affects people in, on a global scale because that global scale is what got us to where we are because imperialism no new knew no borders. We, we saw imperialism happening from fucking sea to shining sea, you know? And it's still happening today in the form of uh, white monopoly capital. So if you are going to look at things within an anti-imperialist framework, you have to not just look at things chronologically, but from its root, where did patriarchy begin? Where did racism begin? And then move out outward from there into how these ideas are interconnected. Why do we have racial biology? We have racial biology because we had slavery. Why did we have slavery? We had slavery because they needed a, a people to exploit. And who were the easiest people to exploit? The people who, li who lived communal lifestyles who were anti-capitalist. And why were they anti-capitalist? Because they lived in a way that benefited everyone. Why did it benefit everybody? Because everybody put into the community. How was it different from feudalism? Yes, this is how it was different from feudalism. You're constantly questioning everything around you. And that kind of, uh, that kind of discourse, we can't talk about it if we're talking about borders. Yes, we can look at a specific case study of how did Cecil John Rhodes fuck over Zimbabwe and make it Rhodesia, and how did he completely decimate the Catonian landscape into being what it uh, to being the colonial town that it is right now? Yes, you can look at those specific case studies, but in order to look at Cecil John Rhodes, you have to look at imperialism as a whole. You have to look at imperialist ideology as a whole. You can't look at anything in a vacuum. Wow, yeah. okay. Excellent. Um, thank you so much for your time here. To anybody new listening, you can find all of our work. I think there's one more question. Flower asked a question in the chat. Question? Oh, sorry. How many generations do you think it will take for society to reframe away from misogyny? Okay, Flower, you and I need to have a talk because that is a difficult question. Depends how much faith you've got in people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to say because I think we have reached critical mass. We've reached a stage in our history where we can no longer ignore just how much work we have to do and how little time in which we have to do it. Because the world is literally on fire. Just look at California and Australia in the summer. It is literally on fire. We had snowstorms in Johannesburg. We don't have much time. So how many more generations will it take? That will depend if we, as the generation who are becoming, coming into control of things within the next couple of years, actually realize that we need to take it fucking seriously. It depends on us as to how long it will take.
Great question, great answer. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, I'm going to listen back to this a few times. Um, it's been so powerful. Is there any more questions for the do we sign up? Get together, people, hold hands. And I think, um, I think huge, huge shout out to my parents who are, the, my, my mom gave me a copy of the Communist Manifesto when I was 11 for my 11th birthday. And uh, I think it started before that, but uh, definitely um, having that revolutionary kind of upbringing did have such a huge impact on the ways in which I view activism now and uh, go forward into how I interact with the world. So inform yourself, read theory. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, everybody who's joined us. Um, we're up every single Wednesday. We're going to go live on TikTok with our podcast. It's going to be interview-based. We're going to interview many niche forms of resistance struggle. Nikita, what have we got for us? Um, also, um, I think it's uh, quite uh, funny that um, we arranged it for today, but today is National Women's Day in South Africa commemorating when um, uh, women of color marched to parliament handing over a memorandum of demands for the government to eradicate the passbook system. And this was in the, the 1950s. I think it was 1956, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and yeah, uh, this is a day that uh, commemorates all those women who stood up against apartheid. Look at you, Kayin, on that tradition. Well done. Congratulations. and solidarity to you and to everybody else as always workers and lumpen of the world unite I know they like to beat you down a lot And when you come around the block, brothers clown a lot But please don't cry, dry your eyes, never let up Forgive, but don't forget, girl, keep your head up And when he tells you you ain't nothing, don't believe him And if you can't learn to love you, you should leave him Cause sister, you don't mean And I ain't trying to gash up, I just call him how I see You know what makes me unhappy? that When brothers make babies and leave a young mother to be a pastor and since we all came from a woman, got our name from a woman, and I came from a woman. I wonder why we take from our women, why we rape our women, do we hate our women? I think it's time to kill for our women, time to heal our women, be real to our women. And if we don't, we'll have a race of babies that will hate the ladies that make the babies. And since a man can't make one, he has no right to tell a woman when and where to create one. So will the real men get up? I know you're fed up, ladies, but keep your head up. Suddenly the ghetto didn't seem so tough And though we had it rough, we always had 
you were broke the rules, ran with the local crew, and had a smoke or two. I realized mama really paid the price, she nearly gave her life to raise me right. And all I had to give her was my life dream, and how I'm off the mic, and make it to the right screen. I'm trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents, it's hard to be legit, and still pay your rent, and in the end it seems I'm heading for the pen. I try to find my friends, but they're blowing in the wind. Last night, my body lost his whole family. It's gonna take the man in me to conquer this insanity. It seems the rain will never let up. I try to keep my head up and still keep from getting wet up. You know it's funny when it rains and pours. They got money for wars, but can't feed the poor. Said it ain't no hope for the youth, and the truth is, it ain't no hope for the future. And then they wonder why we crazy. I blame my mother for turning my brother into a crack baby. We ain't meant to survive, cause it's a setup. And even though you're fed up, you're yeah. getting your head up. By your lonesome, thank the Lord for my kids, even if nobody else wants them. Cause I think we can make it, in fact, I'm sure. And if you fall, stand tall or come back for more. Cause ain't nothing worse than when your son wants to know why his daddy don't love him no more. You can't complain, you was dealt this hell of a hand without a man feeling helpless. Because there's too many things for you to deal with, dying inside, but outside you're looking big. While the tears is rolling down your cheek, it's daddy hoping things don't all fall this week. Cause if it did, you couldn't take it. And don't blame me, I was given this world, I didn't make it. And now my son's getting older and older and cold from having the world on his shoulders. While the rich kids are driving bins, I'm still trying to hold on to surviving friends. And it's crazy, it seems they'll never let up. 